receptivity to the word of God, which God has given Matt. So Matt is going to come up with a picture that God gave him. Um, so thank you, Matt. I don't know whether you are aware of this, but there is a verse, a really important verse in the New Testament that talks about regret. I think there would not be one of us in this room who didn't have regret. Um, we all have regret. But the Apostle Paul says that regret is not godly. Regret is not godly sorrow. The Apostle Paul says repentance is godly. That means saying I'm really sorry and repentance leads to life. And I believe that if we are to hear the words of God and to know the promises of God coming back into our lives, there's no room for regret. And so I just, we're going to be quiet for a few minutes. Matt's going to bring a word. And I would just encourage you to say to the Lord, Lord, I, I don't want any of these regrets. I'm sorry for those things that have jiggered me up and where other people have jiggered me up. And I want to be open to receive your word, which leads to life, to take hold of your promises again. They are amazing. And to be someone who lives in your presence, who enjoys your presence. So, Matt. Thank you. Uh, just as we were praying before in, in, the, um, in the downstairs office, I had a picture um, of a man sort of almost trying to run, and he was almost in a running position. And he had lots of um, tiny little hooks in his skin. I don't think he had particularly too much on, but he had hooks in his physical skin. And these were attached to um, almost like fishing line. And this guy's trying to run through, and I could just... I just had the sense that Jesus was unpicking each hook so that this guy can, can run, can take off, can, can, can go again. So that was the, that was the picture that I had. Um, and it's just a joy, it was a joyous picture because we know that Jesus is there to take those hooks out if we trust him. So let's just be quiet and... Um do our business with the Lord so that we can receive the word joyfully. Um, so, just a few minutes, personal repentance. God's promises are rich and true and absolutely trustworthy. And just small testimony before I pray for Fraser, he's going to be referring to God's promises, God's covenant love. And uh, this week, um, we were just talking about what the Lord is giving him. And uh, I just, just thought, Lord, I need to remember those promises that you've given me. And a letter came through the post. Um, and... It was from Teresa Gordon, who's the wife of John, and uh, I had lost, we had lost a particular, a very, very profound promise. 
prophetic promise that the Lord had given us personally. It was the last time we had John in our homes and that letter came and I was just able to read it out and it was just like the Lord knew that exact moment when, when we needed that promise. The Lord knows your needs. He's got promises. Heaven is full of promises. So just draw on them and remind yourselves of the ones that God has already given you and there'll be new ones today. Father, I thank you for Fraser. Thank you that he has been diligent and wholehearted um, in seeking you and seeking your words. And I ask now for the anointing of your Holy Spirit, Lord, for your word that brings light and life, Lord Jesus. I ask, Lord Jesus, for healing to arise in this place, for deliverance, Lord, for salvation in this place today, as Fraser brings the word of God, which is rich and more powerful than a double-edged sword. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Good. Well, it's great to see you all here this morning, and it's so good, isn't it, to be able to come together uh, to discover more about our faith in Jesus, but also to worship uh, a living God, the God who loves us, who fathers us, and who knows each one of us. And to be here in God's presence is just so special. We are so privileged, aren't we? And we think of, of people who are in such desperate conditions as, as the conditions that, that Matt has just described. Even in Nepal, people are still gathering together uh, to worship God, to, to praise him, to, to learn more of the love of Jesus. And we are so privileged to, to gather in safe and secure and warm conditions. And we have so much to thank God for. I've entitled this morning, uh, God's Promises, Presence and Purpose, believing that uh, for all of us, God has promises, he has uh, his presence which he assures us of, and he has a purpose for each of our lives. And uh, you will know that the, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt, and yet God still had uh, those promises and presence and purpose for their lives. And so we're continuing our preaching series on the book of Exodus, which is essentially about the birth of the nation of Israel. And the main character in this story uh, is Moses. Now, I'm quite sure all of us remember Moses. Remember the baby in the bulrushes? Remember the boy who was adopted into the court of Pharaoh? Uh, later called by God to set the Israelites free from slavery and to lead them into the promised land. This is Moses. And this story is one which, with which most of us are very familiar. It's the stuff of Sunday school stories. It's the subject of films of movies like The Prince of Egypt and the more recently released and appropriately named 
Exodus. Uh, some of you will have seen those films uh, and we could all recall many of the key events in the life and the mission of Moses. Moses is certainly one of the most important characters in the Old Testament. He's credited as being the author of the first five books of the Bible. He's the dominant figure in four of those books and he has numerous mentions in the New Testament as well. And we're going to be reading from the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. We're also going to be looking at some of the references to Moses in the New Testament this morning. But Moses is no larger-than-life superhero. Forget celebrity when you think of Moses. He is someone we can relate to. He's someone who has an unlikely start in life. He's one who makes mistakes. He's one who takes matters into his own hands. He doubts that he's even capable of fulfilling God's purposes. And he has the audacity to question God. This is Moses. And as we read through Exodus and consider the story of Moses and the people of Israel, I'm sure we're going to discover many important life lessons. And my prayer this morning is that our faith in the God who called and guided Moses, our faith will grow. And our, my prayer is that our relationship with God will deepen. Is that what you want? Yeah. Your faith to grow and your relationship with God to deepen. Great. Okay, turn to the person next to you and say, I want my faith in God to grow and I want my relationship with God to deepen. Go. Great. That is excellent. Okay. And most of you look pretty happy about that as well. Okay, you've just made quite a declaration. You want your faith in God to grow and you want your relationship with him to deepen. And I believe that as we apply this story from Exodus to our lives, we're going to see that happen. We're going to be reading this morning from Exodus chapter 2. But first of all, I want to um, give you a rather different introduction to the story of uh, the Exodus story, the story of Moses. Um, you'll know that the, the people of Israel are uh, in terrible slavery in Egypt. Uh, they're being uh, oppressed by cruel slave drivers. And for them, they might have been thinking, nobody understands what we're going through. God seems to have forgotten us. And so here's a piece of writing called I hear them crying, I see them suffering. Um, and I'm going to need your help with this, okay? I know this isn't a third Sunday morning, but nevertheless, um, we're going to do this, at least I hope we are, because without your help, I'm a bit stuck. So this half of the room, it's neatly divided down the middle, this half of the room, um, we're, we're going to say, 
I hear them crying. Okay, and we're going to put our hands to our ears. Okay, these are God's words. I hear them crying. Just try that. I hear them crying. Brilliant. A few ears there as well. Okay, and this half of the room, I see them suffering. I see them suffering. Brilliant. And every time we say that, it's going to become a little bit more intense. Okay? These are God's words. We're trying to see this, the suffering of God's people from God's perspective. At the top of a mountain, behind the mask of a burning bush, God watched the old shepherd creep closer and closer. He looked an unlikely choice. Unlikely like Abraham, unlikely like Isaac, unlikely like Jacob before him. But the old shepherd was God's choice. And now it was time to say hello. <laughs> Moses, God called, don't come any closer. Take off your shoes, for I am the God of your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And this is a special place. Terrified, the old shepherd did as he was told. He slipped off his sandals and covered his eyes. Who wouldn't? And then God spoke again. My people are slaves in the land of Egypt. I hear them crying. I see them suffering. They work long hours for nothing at all. I Their masters whip them and beat them and bruise them. I hear them crying. I see them suffering. Their children are taken and murdered in front of them. I hear them crying. I see them suffering. I care for my people. I hurt when they do. I hear them crying. I see them suffering. And now I have come down to save them, for I hear them crying. I see them suffering. And then God paused. And then God waited. The bush burned dim and low, for God had something else to say, something sure to send the old shepherd shaking something scarier than anything that had happened so far. And Moses, God said at last, Moses, you are going to help me. I hear them crying, I see them suffering. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you hear and you see. You know everything that there is to know about us. And we thank you that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray this morning that as we look at God's word together, we pray that our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and our relationship with the God who loves us 
will grow and deepen. Amen. Good, okay. Let's look at Exodus chapter 2, and I've asked uh, Emily and Paul to read this to us. So find Exodus chapter 2, it's the second book in, in the Bible, so quite easy to find. And here's the ongoing story of God's people, the people of Israel and <coughs> Moses. Now a man of the house of... Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. <clears throat> One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his own people. Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up, came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked the daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. 
God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Moses and the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he heard the flock, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. Thank you. Good, thank you so much. So I'd like this morning to look at these opening chapters of Exodus from several different perspectives and to ask the Holy Spirit to apply uh, these scriptures to our lives. Uh, As we spoke out those words, I hear them crying, I see them suffering. We were seeing the suffering of the people from God's perspective. God was looking down, seeing hearing the cries of these people for help. And we're going to be considering God's response to their their suffering. But first of all, we're going to look at this story from from a corporate, from a national perspective, uh, and then from the perspective of Moses. Uh, As we look at it from a a national perspective, we're, we're looking at the story of a covenant people in slavery. And I want to explain a little bit of the story so far. Some of you will know this, but you can find this story in the previous book, in the book of Genesis. The sons of Jacob had originally travelled to Egypt in a time of famine. And uh, you can read that story in Genesis chapters 42 to 47. You may remember how Joseph receives his brothers at the court as they come asking for help, little knowing that they are talking to their long lost brother. And then there's this subsequent family reconciliation. Their father Jacob, or Israel as he'd been renamed, then settled in Egypt with his 12 sons and their families and their livestock. And these people became known as the Israelites, named after their father Israel. If you like, they were the original asylum seekers. And all of them were Hebrew descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God had said to these people, be fruitful and multiply. And as we learnt last week, they certainly did just that. By the time they left Egypt, having lived there 430 years, the original 70 who had travelled down had grown to about 2 million. And so they effectively became a nation within a nation. And they were never assimilated into Egyptian culture. So chapter 1, which we looked at last week, tells tells us that the pharaoh fearing that they might side with the enemy if war broke out, forces these Hebrews to become a slave nation. And it's hard 
and relentless and it's back-breaking work. They are under the supervision of slave masters. And then in an attempt to eventually wipe out the people, the Pharaoh decrees that all baby boys should be killed at birth. So God's people are suffering terribly. And this goes on and on and on for many years. And as we learned last week, no one can remember anything but slavery. They're born into slavery. They live their lives as slaves. It's who they are. It's how they are. They are a broken people. Eventually, they begin to cry out to God for help. Perhaps they realise that only God can rescue them from this terrible oppression. And we read in chapter 2, verse 24, that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. What was that covenant? It was God's promise made originally to Abraham and then passed on to his son, his grandson and his descendants. And it's recorded for us in Genesis 12. We have it here on the screen. God promises this. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Isn't that an amazing covenant, an amazing promise that God makes over these people? They were people of the covenant, people of God's promise. And somewhere in their memory was this, this assurance that God would bless them, that God would make them into a great nation, that God would bless all peoples on earth through them. And now we read that God remembers his covenant with his people. Now I need to explain that when the Bible talks about God remembering, it's not talking about recall. It's not as if God's forgotten all about his people and suddenly recalls their existence. Oh, goodness me, I nearly forgot. That is not the case. When God remembers he goes into action on our behalf. He does what he has promised to do. And there was a, another promise that God had made. God had promised Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. So God had made that promise. I will surely bring you back again. So even though they were suffering terribly, even though they were oppressed and, and it seemed that God had totally forgotten them, there was this promise over their lives, I will surely bring you back again. It's now that the Israelite slaves will discover that their God is a God of love. He's a God who is totally committed to them and he's a God who keeps his promises. And with the benefit, benefit of hindsight, 
we see that the God who promises to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, this God is a God who delivers on his promises. No wonder they called it the promised land. And what I want to do this morning is to apply this to our lives. If you remember our verse for the year, we are told, do not be afraid, do not be silent. And so when we consider these, this was a covenant people in slavery, why was it that they were suffering? How was it that they had come to be in this place of terrible oppression? What was going on here? What about suffering? We have to be able to, to respond or to, to formulate some answers to these difficult questions with God's help. And it's the same for us. When we're going through things or when we see terrible suffering around us, what about suffering? I believe it's essential that we have a theology of <coughs> suffering if we are to survive spiritually and if we are to answer the, uh, the anguished questions of those for whom this is a really painful issue. How do we speak to the parent whose child has suddenly died? How do we speak to, how do we, how do we pray for the person with terminal cancer? How do we respond to the tragedies of, of war, of terrorism, of famine, of natural disaster, of mass migration? These are big questions and we haven't time to, to answer them, to deal with them properly now. But what I do want to say is this. To suggest that God is permitting this suffering or is in any sense causing evil is mistaken. We live in a fallen world where Satan's dominion of darkness continues to affect us. But wonderfully, we have a God of love who responds to this evil and suffering in ways that always end up furthering his purposes in the world. In the case of the people of Israel, God responded to their suffering by coming to their rescue, by demonstrating his power against the most advanced political and military regime in the world. And by enabling one man, Moses, to mobilise some two million people to exit Egypt. That was some doing. And I'm convinced that God knows exactly what we are going through. God knows the pain. God knows the suffering, the oppression, the irresolution. And he remembers us. He goes into action on our behalf. Just as he delivered the Israelites from their captors, so he delivers us from sin and death and evil. And that is the promise, that is the power of the cross. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians 
contains some brilliant words when we're suffering. Paul is writing from personal experience. He's writing of hardship and near death. And he says, this happens that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Have a look at that first chapter of 2 Corinthians uh, when you're going through it, or when you know others, when you consider others who are really suffering. God is the God of all comfort. Paul praises the God of all comfort. He knows his intervention. He knows his presence. He knows his power at work in these difficult situations. This was a covenant people in slavery. So as we apply this story of these people, this covenant people in slavery to our lives, we need to think too about God's promises, the covenant that he makes. God had covenanted with Abraham. He'd promised to bless him and to make him into a great nation. And Abraham's part of the deal, of the covenant, of the agreement, was to obey God, to leave his country and to go to a land I will show you. God had repeated that promise to Jacob and to Israel. And so as they call out desperately for help, the people are asking God to fulfil his promise. The people of the covenant are calling on the God of the covenant to do what he had promised to do. We, we are people of the new covenant. God has demonstrated his love to us by sending his son Jesus to die for us. That is the basis of the new covenant that God makes with us. And what amazing promises are given us. He offers us forgiveness and eternal life. He offers us a love relationship with the living God. He offers us freedom. He offers us peace. He offers us rest. He offers us the gift of his Holy Spirit. God is directly involved in our lives. He's interested in each one of us. And we have direct access to him through Jesus. And you know, we can trust God's promises to us. I want us to remember some of God's promises to us as a church. And first of all, to look at the promises that many of us hold on to from God's words. Here they are. First of all, in, in Matthew uh, chapter 28. Here's the promise of Jesus. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The words of Jesus to each one of us. Jesus promises, John 14, the counsel of the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Jesus promises you his Holy Spirit to teach you, to comfort you, to guide you, to fill you. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And we read in Philippians, Paul writes, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And again, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Yes and amen. What a wonderful catalogue of promises we have in God's word. And they're just a small selection. Read God's word and discover the promises that God has for each one of his, his, his people, for each follower of Jesus. And then some of God's promises to us which have been given to us as prophetic words. Our friend John Gordon visited us on a number of occasions and brought very specific <coughs> prophetic words to this church. And so I'm going to read just a, a couple of extracts from uh, two of these prophetic words. The first one uh, was entitled The Bridge. And John was referring, first of all, to the bridge that linked uh, the town uh, with the world outside and provides entrance for those who wish to visit and, and live here. God says to us, you are my bridge, my spiritual bridge in this place. In these troubled times, you are indeed a bridge over troubled waters. Moreover, you will find increasingly that many will come to you seeking a haven, seeking a place where they may cross over from the darkness and confusion of the world into the marvellous light of my Son. And I believe we're seeing that prophetic word being worked out uh, in this place, in this church, as people come seeking the truth, seeking the light, the light of Jesus, the light of the world. And then a word entitled The Fire. My people get ready because I'm preparing to send my holy fire upon you in a new and fresh way such as you have not witnessed before. The fire will embrace my presence, my purification and my power. A new dimension of power which will inform every aspect of your church life and ministry. Your worship, outreach and spiritual gifts will all be impacted and there will come a deeper revelation of the power of my word. A deeper passion will burn within your hearts, both leaders and congregation. And we have the, the full copies of those prophetic words, if you'd like uh, to ask for a copy, to read all that God has said to us as a church. As we call out to God, let's remember his promises over this church. Let's call in these promises. Let's ask the Lord to do what he has said he will do. We can call out and we can call in those promises. So we've looked at this story from a, a corporate uh, 
perspective, from a national perspective. Let's now look at it from Moses' perspective. Moses was a man with a destiny. Moses is born a slave in Egypt. His parents are slaves. His brother Aaron and his sister Miriam are slaves. In fact, everyone around him, however distantly related, is a slave. This is a whole nation of slaves. When Pharaoh passes a law requiring that every baby boy born to the Hebrews be drowned in the Nile, Moses' mother hides him for three months and then she places him at the edge of the river in a Moses basket. Of course, what else would you choose? There's an interesting fact in this well-known story of his discovery by Pharaoh's daughter. Babies were not weaned until they were three or four. If you think about it, that gave Moses' mother some three years or more to speak God's word over her baby son. Remember, remarkably, she'd been chosen to nurse this baby as he was uh, brought into Pharaoh's court. And so she was able to speak God's word over her son, to speak of his godly heritage, to tell of God's promise to rescue his people Israel. And so over this young baby, God's word was being spoken. This is the destiny of these slave people, Moses. This is what God is doing. God's hand of protection was over this family. And God uses the mother's act of saving and hiding Moses to begin his plan to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. Being brought up as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter paved the way for Moses to receive the best possible education. He would have studied the literature of Egypt. He would have studied mathematics. He would have had the ability to read and write other languages. And all of this would probably have been followed by a military training and even military command. And throughout these early years, God was preparing Moses in the most remarkable way. I believe that during these years, Moses knew that God's hand was on his life. He knew that his destiny was other than the splendour of Pharaoh's court, the splendour of this palace suggested. Somewhere in the depths of Moses' memory was the knowledge that he had not been born to royalty, that he had been, not been born to the royal family of Pharaoh, but born into slavery, just like the Hebrew people out there who were subject to Pharaoh. And whether this understanding was fully developed before he came across an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, we don't know. But it's, it's almost as if something inside him snaps. Something explodes. He is furious. And in his anger, he kills this Egyptian. And to escape the punishment of Pharaoh, he's forced to flee the country. 
In the New Testament book of Acts, we can read Stephen's description of this incident, and we have it here on the screen. And I want to read this to you. Uh, there's some remarkable passages in the New Testament where the story of Exodus, the story of Moses, is recounted. And this is uh, recounted here by uh, Stephen. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. It's as if Moses is aware in this moment of God's purpose for his life, that of deliverer of God's people Israel. But instead of waiting for God's uh, moment, he acts impulsively. He takes matters into his own hands and he, he attacks this Egyptian and kills him. He's acting in his own strength. He fails to get God's go-ahead. And this one act results in Moses being banished to the deserts of Midian for 40 years. And there he marries and he lives the simple life of a shepherd. He's out in the desert with just the fading memories of his former life in Egypt and his growing communion with God to occupy him. These memories and his relationship with God were the things that sustained him during 40 long years of shepherding in the desert. I believe we can read the desert as both fact and metaphor, because it's in the desert that God meets with Moses. It's there that God refines him and reveals his purposes for Moses' life. I want to read to you a couple of extracts from uh, this book, which is a collection of essays on, on the life of Moses. And in this essay, uh, Philip Yancey uh, describes how God works out his purposes in Moses' life. A fugitive, Moses fled Egypt and for 40 years had no contact with either of his families. A new life began that surprisingly suited him, the lonely life of a nomad. He gained a wife, an extended family, and a new set of wilderness survival skills. His world gradually shrank into a circle of domestic tranquility, and at the ripe old age of 80, he concerned himself mainly with children, in-laws and sheep. God, however, had other plans. While Moses had been forging a new life in Midian, far from the Hebrew slaves, God had been listening to their groans. 
All at once the slow, mysterious work of a timeless God became clear. Nothing in Moses' circuitous life had been wasted. God now had a Hebrew of pure pedigree, expertly trained in Egyptian leadership skills, fully capable of surviving in the wilderness. The time for liberation of God's chosen people had arrived. Now to convince Moses and Pharaoh. I love that piece of writing because it, it shows us that God's purposes were being worked out. Here was Moses, who after all these years was not only a Hebrew of pure pedigree, not only expertly trained in Egyptian leadership skills, but also fully capable of surviving in the wilderness. And boy, he was going to need that. Let's uh, apply this to our lives. First of all, I want us to think about this expression, inquiring of the Lord. It's an expression that's used in the Bible, and especially in the story of David. We often read uh, that David inquired of the Lord. David would often do this. He would ask God for the go-ahead before he acted. And on the occasions when he failed to inquire of the Lord, things would invariably go disastrously wrong. I have to be constantly reminded of the importance of bringing my plans and my proposals to the Lord, saying, Lord, do I have your green light, your go-ahead for this decision or for this plan or for this idea? Just as Moses failed to take this injustice, uh, the, the uh, injustice of, of an Egyptian thrashing one of his fellow Israelites, Moses failed to bring this injustice to the Lord. He, he thought he could sort it out himself by attacking this Egyptian. So I too sometimes find myself acting impulsively, acting in my own strength. And there were consequences for Moses. God needed to put his man through some desert experiences before he could use him. And there may, be, may well be consequences for some of the things that we do. Some of the decisions that we take which don't have God's green light. Here's uh, another extract from this book. This is a writer called Jack Hayford. And he's writing on the desert part of Moses' life. Um, and I love this piece of writing because it has this this memorable phrase at the start of it, there are no deserts where God will leave us deserted. There are no deserts where God will leave us deserted. Our creator is more than a distant deity. 
He is God present with us. He is the one whose nature is to meet us at life's dark, dry or desolate places. To forgive us at life's points of failure, compromise or sin. And to point us back to his inimitable way for our lives. He is the one who transforms the barren places, making it clear that they are places of his purpose designed to bring us to ours. God meets us, he forgives us, and he points us back. Next, moving into our destiny. We're applying this story to our lives and to our situation. Now, Polly and I attended the ICTHUS Leaders Conference recently, and the two main speakers there were Jackie Pullinger and Georg Taubman. Both remarkable people who've been called and equipped by God to work in very difficult situations. Georg heads up a humanitarian aid organisation called Shelter Now, which operates in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Think about it, two of the most dangerous nations in the entire world. They have worked there for many, many years. He described during his talk an interview with someone who was applying to work with them and to work in a refugee camp that they'd set up uh, in uh, Afghanistan. And he, in this interview, he asked uh, this person, what motivates you? What is it that motivates you to want to come and work here in some of the most difficult and dangerous place, places in the world? And this person answered, well, it's compassion for these people. And most of us would think, wow, that's a, that's a really good answer. Apparently he said to this person, I'm afraid that is not enough. Yeah. It's knowing God's call that will enable you to commit. Yeah. If you simply rely on the compassion that you feel, you won't last any time at all. It's knowing God's call that will enable you to commit. Many of us know that God has spoken prophetically over our lives. That God has given us words of hope, promise, even direction. What God rarely reveals, however, is his time schedule. We always want things now. We try to force God's hands. Um, we want things straight away. We, we try to step into what we believe God is calling us to straight away into a position of leadership or ministry or service the moment the word is given. God's plans and purposes and destiny for your life and God's timing may involve waiting and may involve a test of your faith. 
Wherever we're at right now, whether it's in a desert place or on a mountaintop, he comes to us. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. And he assures us of his purposes for our lives. There's this wonderful uh, piece of writing, this wonderful promise, uh, which is found in Jeremiah 29. It's one that many of us hold on to. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Hold on to that promise. God has purposes for each one of our lives. And finally, I want to finish by reading from the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. There's a great contrast between uh, the story of Moses, as we've read it in uh, the book of Exodus, and these words here in the book of Hebrews, which are equally inspired, but they're written on this side of the cross. Moses' life as recorded in Exodus includes all his failures and imperfections. The writer of Hebrews describes the God-given purposes of Moses' life. And this portrait of Moses comes in the faith chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11. Uh, and you remember that that chapter starts in this way. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Here's an encouragement to us to trust in God, to put our faith in our faithful God, to obey God and to walk in his ways, whatever the cost, and to persevere, seeing him who is invisible, knowing that God is ever-present, knowing that promise of Jesus, I will never leave you, I am with you to the end of the age. This morning, if you have said yes to the forgiveness and the new life that Jesus offers, thanks to his death on the cross, you live under the new covenant. You can thank God for his promises, you can thank God for his presence with you, and you can thank God for his purposes for your life. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you that you are a faithful God. You keep your promises. Thank you that you know us as individuals. We are called and chosen by you. We are men and women of destiny. Thank you that God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Thank you that your hand is on the life of all who love you. Your hand is on the life of all who trust you, who follow you, on all who have received the love and the forgiveness of Jesus. And we know, we know, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He is the one who transforms the barren places. They are places of his purpose, designed to bring us to ours. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your promises, for your presence, and for your purposes for our lives. Help us, every single one of us, to walk in your ways, to follow you, to love you, to obey you, to serve you, whatever the cost. Amen. We're going to spend a few moments uh, bringing our lives before Jesus in worship, in some worship. So I would encourage you to stand um, as the band come up.